We're going to be reading from the 103rd Psalm, just one verse. Psalm 103, verse 14. Here the Bible says, For God himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. The psalmist David once said, I have been young and now I am old. That's Psalm 37 and verse 25. And every person who lives a full life or anything close to it goes through a time of youth. Some people have an especially traumatic youth. And others have an especially sheltered youth. And most have something in between. Some people are deprived of any education in spiritual things. And others are blessed to be exposed to the Word of God and the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ early in their lives. And some of them are taught to love God by people who love God themselves. And some of these are led to love God as well and to make the decision to honor and serve Him. In time, most of these people, in fact, I'm going to say all of them, experience a crisis. They realize that they are not as good as they understand they should be. They fail to live up to the standard that God seems to set in His Word. Some of them think that others succeed at that, but they know that they do not. My father was a person like that. I don't know if any of you knew him. He was, by my judgment, a very good man. I loved him very much. He was raised to follow Christ, but he came to the conclusion, he told me before he died, when he was a teenager, that he just wasn't good enough. And he chose to handle that, like many others have, in a very unhealthy way. A common way, but a very unhealthy one. Some people delude themselves into thinking eventually that they are good enough by focusing on the ways that they feel that they're better than others. And these become hypocrites. Others, like my father for 18 years, give up and walk away and leave the church behind and try to live without God. Others determine that they will go ahead and continue going to church and hope that somehow things will get better. Maybe they'll get hit by a truck when they're having a good day. Or maybe they'll just eventually cross that line that they recognize they haven't crossed yet and eventually get as good as they need to be or somehow, some way, everything will work out. These become devoutly religious but generally miserable people. Well, I believe that the underlying problem in all of these cases is a failure to appreciate the human condition and perhaps to appreciate that God understands the human condition. And so for the duration of our study, I want to consider what the Bible teaches on this matter. 
I want to begin by considering two popular ideas about the human condition that I reject as untrue. One of these is a secular and atheistic idea, and the other is a religious idea that actually professes to be the biblical and Christian one. The first is what we'll call evolutionary progress. This is the secular, atheistic concept of the human condition. But although it is secular and atheistic, that doesn't mean that uh, no Christian holds to it. Many times Christians inadvertently, mistakenly borrow ideas from other worldviews. And so it may be that there are many people who believe in Jesus Christ, but they've embraced this notion. And this notion says that in one way or another, humanity is getting better naturally and will eventually get as good as it can possibly be and then it will go extinct and it will be replaced by something that's even better than it. Now this idea has philosophical and even scientific problems that make it unworthy of acceptance by anyone. But if you believe in God and the Bible, then this notion is even more unacceptable because it runs completely contrary to biblical teaching. According to the Bible, humanity was created by God in a way that he judged to be very good. So he said in Genesis 1 and verse 31, when he observed that something was not good, as in Genesis 2.18, he immediately improved the situation. Now in these contexts, the phrases very good and not good refer specifically to how man was suited to accomplish God's intentions and plans for him. In Revelation chapter 11 verse 4, the Bible says, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. The implication of this passage is that God created the world for his glory and honor and because he wanted to create it. One translation says it was created for his pleasure. Thus all things, including human beings, find their purpose in God's purpose for them. God determines whether we are very good or not good. Or we could say that whichever of those describes us depends on whether or not we are fulfilling God's intention for us. One of God's express purposes for humanity was for them to fill the earth, according to Genesis 1 and verse 28, which is why God said it was not good that man should be alone, Genesis 2.18. When he was alone, specifically when he lacked a counterpart with whom he could reproduce, he was not capable of accomplishing at least that part of what God had purposed for him and created him to do. Now my point in all of this is to show that God created humanity in such a way that once there was male and female, he could say it is very good. When you consider the rest of Genesis 1 and verse 28, you'll find that God's purposes for humanity on the whole included that they be the image of God in the world. 
and that they rule the rest of creation and use the rest of creation to promote the glory of God. The idea of being God's image bearer has something to do with how we are made, specifically with the combination of things that make us different from every other part of creation. Things like personal consciousness. Now this podium is a good podium so far as podiums go. It's doing precisely what a podium was built to do. Holding up my notes and allowing me to stabilize myself while I'm standing up here. But this podium would not make a good image bearer of God because it lacks personal consciousness. It doesn't have the ability to think or to speak or to develop a relationship with really anything around it. But we have personal consciousness and intelligence and language and volition and moral reasoning and creativity, the capacity to bring together colors and words and musical notes and make something beautiful just like God. We are His image bearers. We have the capacity to feel things good and bad, painful and joyous, and all of this combined in a physical body that can make other versions of itself, that can reproduce according to its own kind. These qualities make humans very good because they enable us to know God and to reflect the character and at least some of the qualities of God in the world. To receive the love of God and to understand it and to love Him back in return. To grasp certain aspects of God's glory with our minds and then to ascribe that glory to Him with our lips and with our lives. That's to worship. To understand the rest of creation and through time and through experimentation and study to understand it more and more and more and to take hold of it and to harness it and to utilize it for its own good purposes. And all of this so that we might enjoy a very special kind of fellowship with our Creator. God made us very good in all of these ways from the very beginning. God made us just the way He wanted us. And rather than getting better if such a thing is even possible, to get better from very good. The Bible teaches that man has failed to maintain that very good condition, and rather he has gotten worse. The idea of evolutionary progress, that humans are much better now than they ever were before, and whatever problems you or anyone else has in this moment are just the accidents of being born at that particular point in the stream of evolutionary development. And if you're not pleased, just wait. If you're not fit, you'll die. Something will come along and topple you over and, and you'll go extinct. But if you are fit, you'll survive. And eventually you'll die, but something better will come along. This idea, whatever it generates in the human soul is at the very least contrary to the Bible. And I reject it, and I encourage you to reject it as well. There's another idea about the human condition, 
And this claims to represent the teaching of the Bible. In fact, it is often called the Christian doctrine of man. It is summed up in the words total depravity. And occasionally you'll see the word hereditary stuck in the middle to make it total hereditary depravity. And those who add this word are emphasizing that this condition originated with Adam and Eve, the father and mother of humanity, and has passed from them on to all other humans. We've inherited it. In fact, many times the word heredity is used to uh, emphasize that this condition is supposedly even present in infants, even from the mother's womb, as some of the creeds say. Now, the idea of total depravity is not that all humans are as bad as they possibly could be. Everybody knows that's not the case. If it was, this room would be a whole lot different. We'd be fighting like dogs over a bone and most of us would not survive a half an hour together. Nobody affirms that every human being on earth is as bad as they possibly could be. That's a misrepresentation of total depravity. Neither is it that humanity is getting worse all the time. Anyone who knows history knows that's not the case. Rather, total depravity is the idea that human beings have a nature that is utterly turned against God and His will so that it is impossible for humans in their natural condition to do anything that is truly good or to seek after God or to exercise faith in Him even if they were told the truth about Him. Of course, the people who affirm total depravity would agree with the Bible that God has revealed Himself to everyone through creation. In fact, some of them would go a step further and argue that God has put an innate knowledge of himself into all people. But because people are totally depraved, they hate God by their very nature. And they are irrevocably bent away from God unless their nature is changed through the miracle of the new birth or regeneration. Now all of those terms and words are biblical terms, even the word depravity can be found in some English translations of the Bible, but I deny that the concept is biblical. There are many passages we could consider to show that, but I want to show you four examples of real people. We read about them in the book of Acts, and everyone would agree that when the Bible describes them in the areas we're going to focus on, they were unregenerate. They were lost people. They weren't Christians. And yet the Bible describes them as people who loved God. And they were seeking God. And it shows how they turned to faith in God without any evidence of some miracle being wrought to change their nature. The first is the Ethiopian nobleman in Acts chapter 8, the eunuch. When he's introduced, the Bible tells us that he did not know who Jesus was nor did he understand virtually anything about God's plan to save sinners, but he did love God. He was returning from Jerusalem to which he had traveled at great expense and peril for this sole stated purpose, to worship 
Acts 8 and verse 27. We see him move from a state of unbelief to saving faith in Christ. But there's no reference or even implication of some miracle being worked on his nature. All that the Bible says was necessary for this man to believe in Jesus was that he should hear about him. Next, consider the case of the Philippian jailer. Here was a man who was worse off than the Ethiopian. He didn't even know who the true God was. He was a polytheistic pagan, and when we first meet him, he appears to be a rather cruel man. But he witnessed some things in the world around him that caused him to question his former positions. And without any indication of a miracle being performed on his nature, he asked the question, what must I do to be saved? Acts chapter 16 and verse 30. And he's told in verse 31 to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then after hearing the word of the Lord spoken to him in verse 32, the Bible says he believed. And he was baptized, verses 33 and 34. Earlier in the same chapter, we read about a woman named Lydia. The Bible does say of this woman in the course of her story that the Lord opened her heart, Acts chapter 16, verse 14. And yet before the Lord opened her heart, whatever it was that that meant, the Bible describes her as one who feared and worshipped God and who tried very hard to obey God's commandments, even in a culture that was generally disinterested in him. And as a woman who prayed and who listened when people spoke about God, it would be absurd to accuse a woman like that of hating God, even before he opened her heart. And I think that the most reasonable way of reading the account is that he opened her heart through the preaching of Paul, rather than by a miracle being worked on her nature, which she evidently didn't need anyway. Finally, consider the case of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. When we meet Cornelius, he is, according to an angel, who I suppose was a fairly good judge of things, in need of words by which he and his household should be saved. That's Acts 11 and verse 14. In other words, he was not a regenerate man, but all the same, the Bible describes him as a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually, Acts 10 and verse 2. This is what the Bible says about him. Later, the Apostle Peter is led by the Holy Spirit to acknowledge that this man practiced righteousness, Acts chapter 10 and verse 35. And it was unreasonable to think that God would not be pleased with him for that, even though he was not Jewish. This man wanted to hear about Jesus, and he wanted to know how to be truly right with God so much that even though the preacher was prejudiced and cruel and dismissive, he was willing to work through that in order to lay hold of the message. Now my point in all of these cases is to show that according to the testimony of the Bible, Whatever the human condition is, it's not total depravity. There are people in this world who could be described as utterly turned against God. 
The imagination of their heart is only evil continually. Their heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. They're like a man full of sores from head to toe in their wickedness and their evil and their brokenness. But not everyone, not everyone has allowed themselves to reach that state. Whatever is true of all unregenerate people, it is not that they hate God and can do nothing else. It is not that they are incapable of believing his word, though it were told to them unless some external power first moves them into that capacity. So what is the human condition according to the Bible? I'm going to describe the condition with the word fallenness. And I use that word because I think it's a biblical term. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, the Apostle Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I suggest that there is a sense in which the deeds of Adam and Eve did impact all humanity. There is a sense in which we fell in their fall. But there's also a sense in which we contribute further to our own fallenness through our own actions. And then there is also a sense in which the fallenness of the world where we live shapes our condition as well. To see the way in which Adam and Eve impacted us, I would direct us first to Romans chapter 5 verse 12. The apostle says, therefore just as through one man... Sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. The text goes on to say, by the transgression of the one, the many died. And through the one who sinned, the judgment arose from transgression resulting in condemnation. By the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, and through the one's transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. Through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Now, I read all of these simply to show that Adam's disobedience, his sin, had an impact on the condition of all humanity. We know that it wasn't total depravity. To learn what it was, we should look back at Genesis chapter 3 and read about it directly. Genesis 3, beginning in verse 16. Then to Eve, God said... I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, until you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden. He drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. 
Without giving an exhaustive exposition of these texts, I would suggest that from them we learn that the human condition in our state of fallenness is one of ignorance and weakness, by which I mean physical weakness and the incapacities that come from that, instability, by which I mean moral instability, and deception. Now the first two of these are hereditary. That is, uh, they pass to all humans and they impact us from birth as the result of Adam and Eve's sin. I should say that even if Adam and Eve had never sinned, I suppose that babies would still have been born ignorant and weak. That just seems to be how reproduction works. But because of Adam and Eve, some babies will never grow out of the ignorance and weakness with which they came into this world. And those who do never grow as far or as fully as they otherwise would have. All human beings are ignorant. That includes me. It includes every one of you and everybody in the world. The Bible says that God knows all things. 1 John 3 and verse 20. Most humans know some things, but no human knows all things. We are all ignorant. We're born ignorant. In fact, we're born so ignorant and with such a limited capacity to understand and to grasp what is going on around us that for a while we're justified by our ignorance. But eventually that passes for most people. Eventually most of us reach a state in life where we have enough knowledge and enough reasoning ability, including moral reasoning, because we're made in God's image, that we can distinguish between good and evil. And even though we're still ignorant, we're no longer justified by ignorance. Knowledge is important. We cannot be what God made us to be without knowing some things. In fact, the mandate to have dominion over the earth seems to imply that our growing in knowledge is a part of fulfilling our purpose in God's eternal plan. And yet it's difficult to learn for all of us. Some of us struggle to learn math. Some of us struggle to learn English or language or literature or history. Some of us might not struggle in one of those areas, but we struggle in another. And even when we excel in learning, we always run into some point in life when we struggle to learn anymore. It's hard. Even all of the things that we ought to know, we will never reach a state in which we know all things. Ignorance can be improved but it can never be overcome completely. Ultimately, it is just a part of the human condition. Physical weakness is another thing that distinguishes us from God. With God, all things are possible, but with man, many things are impossible, says Jesus in Matthew 19 and verse 26. We lack the capacity or the energy or the focus or the stamina to accomplish them. Of course, we can get stronger, but the great paradox of life is that 
as we get older and stronger, we also become more conscious of our weaknesses. I'm stronger now than I was when I was two months old, but I'm also getting closer to the ultimate manifestation of my weakness, the weakness that results from my fallenness. And eventually I'm going to get so weak that I can't go on living and I'll die. And the same thing will happen to everybody else in the world. There are lots of people in this world who are stronger than me in many ways, but they too are weak. All humans are weak and all humans will eventually die. And it's just part of being a human that our muscles, our eyes, our minds begin to falter. We get tired, we get hungry, we get sick. And there are certain things that we want to do and there are certain things that we need to do, but we find we cannot do them. And then there's instability. Now when I speak of instability, as I said, I'm, I'm talking about moral instability and I'll explain this further but this is something that we do not inherit from Adam and Eve this comes from our own sins and to some degree from the sins of others in the world around us and against us as we live in a fallen system in James chapter 1 verse 8 the Bible says there is such a thing as a double-minded man and a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Now the word double-minded literally means a two-souled man. He has two souls in him. His heart is not fully fixed on God. There's something else that pulls him in another direction. And this person is extremely unstable. And an unstable person is someone who is bent downward, prone to fall. Someone who has the tendency to tumble. If this person yields to the pull of what seems natural, they're going to fall down. An example of moral instability would be same-sex attraction. This is the temptation that lies at the foundation of the sin of homosexuality. Now when I was a boy, I heard lots of Christians very foolishly call same-sex attraction a choice. It is of course a choice who you have sexual relations with, but it's not a choice who you're attracted to. There are lots of factors involved in that and some of them are very elusive and mysterious. And it's possible for people to do things or to have things done against them that cause their moral sense to be warped and therefore their appetites, which are perfectly normal and natural and given by God in order to help us accomplish what we're made to do, those become warped too. The word pervert is a strong word and an ugly word and nobody would like it to be applied to them. But in reality, all sinners, all people who reach a state of moral reasoning and spend enough time in this world that they deliberately choose to do something contrary to the will of God become perverted in one sense or another. Our affections move 
away from the will of God to something else, something base and earthy and sometimes demonic. And those can be sexual affections or they can be any other kind of appetite or longing or desire. It can be the the desire for praise and for friendship and for popularity. The Bible says that as sinners, we develop inordinate desires, evil desires, Colossians 3 and verse 5, and these cause us to be bent downward. And in that condition, it becomes a great struggle not to fall. Finally, deception is a part of the human condition. To be deceived is to be led astray by a lie. And I believe that every one of us is almost certainly deceived about something, even at this very moment. And this is because we're ignorant. And we live in a world that's full of lies. We live in a world that in a very real sense is under the sway of the devil at this present time. And Jesus said that when the devil speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. John 8 and verse 44. So I would say it is impossible for any one of us, however smart and clever and shrewd and and watchful we think we are, to go through life and never be deceived about anything. It might be something small as what time it is. You might look at your watch and it's off by five minutes, but that's deception. You're off. You don't know as much as you think you do. You've been led astray. You see, this is the very important point. You do not have to hate the truth to be deceived. Now, if you do hate the truth, you will be deceived. The Bible says that the one who hates the truth, and there are people who hate truth. There are people who embrace ignorance, and they embrace weakness, and they embrace instability, and they allow those things to define who they are as a person, and they hate the truth because the truth challenges them in all of those areas. And the Bible says if you hate the truth, then God will give you a deception even a strong delusion so that you should believe the lie and be condemned. 2 Thessalonians 2, 11 through 12. Now you might be troubled by that, but don't dare to challenge God over that because all he's given that person is what the person wanted. They didn't love the truth. They hated the truth, so he gave them a lie. That's what they wanted. But not everyone hates truth. And even those who love truth and who are seeking after it can be deceived. Ignorance, weakness, instability, and deception. These are not just the problems of the people out there. They're not just the problems of people in false religion and in denominationalism. They are the human condition for everyone in the world. And if you will become a Christian then God will at once begin to deliver you from all of these things. He will give you knowledge. He will give you strength. You say even physical strength? Yes, according to his will. 
If he needs to bless you, to enable you to do what uh, he wants you to do, the Bible says those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God can give you whatever you need to be useful to the purposes for which he has called you. He'll straighten you out if you're crooked. He'll enlighten you to the truth and drive the deception and the lies away. And ultimately, he will deliver us from all of these things completely in the resurrection. But until that day, the deliverance is progressive and partial. In other words, we will continue to deal with ignorance and weakness and instability and deception all of our lives, even as a Christian. You need to know that. And you need to know that God knows that so that you can receive four great blessings. Four blessings that will protect you from those unhealthy responses to the realization of your own problems. Four great blessings that will keep you from pretending that you're better than you are. Four great blessings that will keep you from giving up and walking away and embracing your fallenness and letting that just decide who you're going to be until it takes you to hell. Four great blessings that will keep you from becoming a miserable, albeit religious person. Number one, knowing the human condition and knowing that God knows it will keep you hopeful. You must never think that you are so ignorant, so weak, so broken, so deluded that God cannot save you if you are willing to turn to him. The passage that we read to introduce the lesson belongs to a psalm of praise to God for his graciousness. I want you to listen to it in its context. These are some of the most beautiful words ever written in history. Psalm 103, verses 8 through 14. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children. So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And you might say, how can that be? How can God feel that way towards someone like me? To such a worm as I. Verse 14 says, for he himself knows our frame. He knows what we're made of. He is mindful that we are but dust. God created us. He knows where we are. And when he made the gospel, he made it for us to come to where we are and bring us 
to something better. He has the power to save us from our fallenness and make us all that we need to be to be very good again. Number two, knowing the human condition and knowing that God knows it will keep you humble. The Bible says that in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven, to have God rule over you and accomplish your purpose in life, you must be poor in spirit. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3. That is humble, brokenhearted. If we deceive ourselves into thinking that God's work in us is finished, if I say, you know, I, I've been doing this for a while, several years now, and I finally reached the stage, I have nothing left to learn. My weakness is not so great. I'm not broken anymore. I have it all figured out just right. I see through all of the falsities and lies and and delusions around us. And if everybody else was just like me, then they'd be all right as well. If that's the way I think, then God can never complete his work in me. I've shut him out. I tell you, number three, knowing the human condition and knowing that God knows it will keep you merciful. Jesus taught us to pray that God would forgive us as we forgive those who sin against us. Matthew 6 and verse 12. He taught us that we will be judged with the same standard with which we judge others. So we should be merciful and patient and forbearing as much as we possibly can be because those against whom we are inclined to pass judgment They're made of the same stuff we are. They have the same condition we have. Remembering that will empower us to love our enemies even as God has loved us. I think about how Jesus interacted with his disciples. He told them over and over and over again. I don't know how many times I've never counted that he was going to die and he would rise again on the third day. And yet when he did, they didn't believe it. And he appeared to them and he let them touch him and they still didn't believe it. And yet he continued and he didn't abandon them. He was patient with them because they were ignorant and they were weak. You remember when they were with him in the garden and he asked them to watch and pray with him and they didn't. How did he respond? Did he say, why did I ever waste my time picking you stupid men, you worthless men? Why did I think that you would be there for me when I needed you? What's wrong with you? No, when he was suffering, he saw them and he said, The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He knows our frame, that we are but dust. And so he is merciful to us. And we ought to be merciful to one another. And finally, to know the human condition 
and to know that God knows it will keep us faithful. Remember, faithfulness is not flawlessness. It is the relentless pursuit of the will of Christ. It's not a decision you make at one moment. It's not signing a card, praying a prayer, taking a dip, and, and then it's all over. It's a new lifestyle. The human condition reminds us why we must be justified by faith. We're not ignorant enough. And we don't have it within us to offer God perfection. James, who said in James 2 and verse 10, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all, then said in chapter 3 and verse 2, We all stumble in many ways. We're not perfect. None of us. And truth be told, we're not even perfect in the ways that we sometimes feel that we are. Maybe you are tempted to say, no, listen, I know my life is in shambles. I've got lots of problems. But at least when I come here this morning and I do this, it's perfect. Probably not as much as we think. Probably not as much as we think. If our hearts were laid bare, we'd probably see, even here, I fail. Even here, I stumble in many ways. It's so important here to realize that the gospel is not about God giving us a second chance to do what we failed to do before. Because if we had one, we would fail again. And the same the third time and the fourth and the thousandth. The gospel is about saving us out of a fallen state. The only hope of justification we have is by pardon. And when we're faithful to Christ, God grants us perpetual pardon. Listen to 1 John 1 and verse 7. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light. What does it mean to walk in the light? This is the relentless pursuit of the will of Christ. To know it and to do it. This is allowing the light of God's word to bathe your whole life in illuminating glory to expose every ugly, nasty, hurtful, broken, shameful, embarrassing thing about you. How can you allow that to happen? How can you not cover up some of it Because if you walk in the light, as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses you from all sin. The light is what enables you to know how to grow, how to get better. It exposes the areas where you need to improve. This is not talking about a rebellious person. It's talking about a person who has submitted to Christ and he's trying to learn and to do his will. He's ignorant, he's weak, he stumbles, he's unstable, he's deceived, but he persists in faith in Christ. He does not embrace his human condition. He gives it over to God to complete his work in him. And the Bible says that such a man is right with God, not because he's perfect, but because God makes him right by the blood of Jesus through his faithfulness. I dare say that a person who who fails to recognize the human condition 
and that God knows it too, cannot and will not be faithful. A person in that situation will either become proud or else despair of any hope. And that person may get to a point where they do hate God and they reject Him altogether. But if you love God right now and you know who you are, know that He knows who you are too and He still loves you. And come to him with your ignorance and your weakness and your instability and your deception and your brokenness and your fallenness and let him love you and through Christ transform you into something greater and ultimately very good.